what's going on guys so this is a little bit of a pilot podcast we're gonna we're gonna give this a shot here if you're familiar with with matt's point you know i've done a lot of writing got close to 100 articles on on the site trying to expand a little bit see if we can do a little bit more video some youtube videos and and a podcast you know over the few last few years of just writing i've met a ton of cool people and i think it'd be great to you know, share some of their knowledge on a podcast. Um, and, and a lot of that is going to be directed obviously to tennis, but we're going to, we're going to try to bring in some people from different uh, types of performance fields. So today I got Matt McInnes Watson. This is a, uh, it's a good buddy of mine, but he's also a really smart dude basically the plyo guy so if you if you've followed him at all um online uh, you may have you may have seen him on some of the content that i've shared i've even written a couple blog posts about plyometrics so matt welcome man thanks a lot for doing this why don't you just start off by by telling us you know a little bit about yourself what you're doing to your your education where you're from all that good stuff awesome thanks ever so much sir having me on as well. Um, yeah, so as, as Matt said, I'm Matt McInnes-Watson. Um, I'm British, if you, can, if you can understand my accent. I know I've been meeting a lot of people over the last couple of years, as, as Matt has said as well, equally, I think with, uh, with the pandemic situation, we've been speaking to all sorts of different people. So yes, I'll, I'll try and keep my English as, as good as possible. Um, so yeah, I currently live in, in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, um, where I currently teach. But my passion is uh, is speed and, and power sports. So, you know, tennis is, is part of that um, group of sports that I, I wouldn't say I work within, but there are a few people that, um, you know, I, I talk to maybe impact through some of my plyometric knowledge. Um, my kind of upbringing in sport was um, I played football, as we call it in, in England, or soccer for you Americans that are listening. Um, but was quickly introduced to basketball when I was kind of 16, 17. Um, and from that, found out that I wasn't really that good at it, but was more along the athletic side of things. Um, and was introduced to, to high jumping. So had a had a, an okay career as a high jumper, um, but it got me into plyometrics. Um, and amongst that, uh, I did a master's in athletic development um, out of doing a, a bachelor's in sports science. Um, and recently started a, a PhD, um, showing how crazy I am to keep staying in education after doing a master's <laughs> and, and then deciding to do a PhD, but it's specifically on the plyometrics that I coach um, and, and preach within my practices. Uh, and yeah, I, I run a, um, a small business online for, um, for plyometrics um, that has a whole host of different programs and kind of consult with a lot of um, coaches, athletes, teams um, all over the place now. Um, and yeah, support them with, with kind of speed and, and dynamic power work. Uh, yeah, that's a, like Very I said, that's a short introduction to me. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate you keep, keeping it concise. But uh, um, yeah, so, so Matt, what, what distinguishes kind of a plyometric versus a non-plyometric like give us a little bit more background because you know some people we, we probably have some coaches listening that have some understanding uh, about the science um, of plyos and, and what they are but there might be some that 
that, that don't have that background information. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, and I think actually there are also some really well-educated coaches out there that still that are still getting the wrong information. So it's, it's important yeah. to, to point that out as well. But I mean, if we were to really put it down to its simplest form, plyometrics to me, and I think a lot of people now are a movement of some kind that's relatively fast um, that has what I class as a, a landing and a takeoff to the sequence. Okay, so that might be that you are jumping off of one foot, coming in to land on the opposite foot, and then taking off the other side of it. Um, and there was a lot of discussion around the timeframes in which we should complete these plyometric movements in. Um, and it's it kind of, quote unquote, is, is said to be meant to be under this 0.25 barrier. But realistically, if it's a, a, a tall postured movement, and it's a relatively fast movement, then I think you're in the realms of plyometrics. And we, we consider everything from high velocity running or sprinting to you know, what people and the kind of old school terms of plyometrics um, class as a depth jump, which is falling from a platform and rebounding off the floor. And I think the, the misconception that comes in is that we tend to get a lot of people that and it may be because of the way that we interpret it through language, but it's if something is some kind of jump, then we assume that it's plyometric in nature. And I think that people get it twisted in that way more than they do necessarily in the science of it. They might not know the science behind plyometrics itself. They just see people jumping around and think, you know, because that has the same sort of um, nuances to it, then we're getting the same training adaptations that we'd wish for. So that's a, that's a simple way to put it, um, but also a really important way for all coaches within, you know, basic level of teaching young kids all the way up through the performance ladder. So what, just tell us really quickly, a couple of examples, what's not plyometric that maybe people have thought of as plyometric yeah. in recent years? Yeah. So I think a lot of people see, um, see counter movement based jumps as a form of plyometric and if you were to go back to what i previously said in that it should have a landing and a takeoff to the sequence we we have not fallen from anything previously for us then to hit the ground and get the really the true elastic responses that the human body has in it so we have a lot of responses within the body that you know it's just la uh, it's natural in locomotion we'll move around without realizing and we use processes within muscles, within the tendons that propel us off the ground naturally. And a counter movement jump doesn't do that. You know, when we're, we're flat on the ground, we'll flex at the hips and the knees and then we'll explode back out of it. It might seem like it's an explosive movement, but it's not classed as a plyometric. And we know within research, the differences between a plyometric two foot movement and a counter movement jump. You know, we have a lot to suggest how different the, uh, the ground reaction forces might be, how much faster that contact might be, um, and a lot of other um, in-depth kind of data points that will come from what the body's doing before we hit the ground as well, which is also vital. That, as well as people fall in love with box jumps, which is exactly the same as a counter-movement jump. It's just, there's just a different stimulus to what we're trying to 
completely other uh, other side of the of the takeoff. So when we leave the ground, we're trying to achieve something. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think those two are the biggest movements that are claimed to be plyometric that truly aren't. And and not to say that those movements may not be um, useful. At, at certain times, you know, during the training process for an athlete, for a tennis player, but uh, but understanding kind of the difference is is pretty important because each has, you know, a real difference in terms of the adaptations, right? So, can you tell us a little bit, like, what, why is this landing and takeoff action so important, and what adaptations does it create, you know, at the tissue level? Yeah. Um, so I think the, if, if we look at the way in which the, the, if you look at the differences between the plyometric and non-plyometric, and we'll use that counter movement jump versus, let's say, two foot takeoffs on the ground. Um, uh, the, the biggest part of it you, you see, and like you said, there is still worth in training counter movement jumps. By all means, I think that you should, there is a time and a place to use that. And if we look at the model of the phases of what's happening when we hit the ground and when we leave the ground, we have the concentric or the kind of the push action or the rebound action that's a lot more obvious in a counter movement jump, as opposed to the other side of that, um, of, of the phases of when we land and take off in plyometrics, where we get much more of an eccentric spike or a lengthening of tissue around the joints. So we want our bodies well, our mind wants us as much as possible to reduce when we hit something. So we, you know, if someone fell out of a building, you're never going to stay stiff on the ground and, and rebound off of it. We all want to disperse all that energy. In sport, realistically, 99% of the time, we don't want to disperse much energy. We want to utilize that. So when we come in to change direction, we want to be pretty stiff when we do that so that we can propel back the other way. So we get a lot more of an eccentric spike or the first half of the takeoff where the forces will kick right up as opposed to the flip of when we use a counter movement jump. So our plyometrics is a lot heavier on that side of the the phases of what you might see as the stretch shortening cycle. Um, Now, in terms of the adaptations that come with that is we've got to look at the the physical parts um, of the joints that are being affected by this and the tissue that's affected by this and the one that's really affected by it the most are our tendons and ligaments and how they are really effectively pulled as opposed to in slower actions. So when something's fast, we call upon our tendons a lot more because they, for one, they are able to handle a lot more load than your muscles might be when it comes to really heavy plyometric landings, which you don't get. We know that the plyometric side of the spectrum we receive a lot more force than we would do at the, you could say the counter movement end of the spectrum and jumping. We just aren't able to create that much ground reaction force. So mm-hmm. when we when we call upon the soft tissue within our body, we're gonna call upon the tendons a lot more um, within a plyometric than we would do within a, we could say a non or sans plyometric movement. And that therefore gives us much greater stiffening effect of that tendon which allows us to also stiffen the joint, which is critical for better locomotive capacities within um, you know, any speed and power event, really, as I mentioned before. There's very rare points where you want the body to completely collapse. You wanna stay tall in a good position to be able to control your posture. 
you might want to attack a shot in tennis. Um, you might be running across the court. The last thing you want to do is for all your, your major joints to compress and collapse. You want to be relatively stiff to then move out of that shot. Um, so you're going to get adaptations from the tendons as well that are going to thicken the tendon. And as I said before, they're going to stiffen the tendon, which is going to be much more critical for producing force. And are there any muscular adaptations? Yeah, you will have muscular adaptations because, you know, we have when there's there's research that's suggesting now that it's not necessarily that we're we're getting a a lengthening effect so much in the muscle as opposed to the lengthening effect that we're getting from the tendon in an eccentric muscle contraction. Sorry, my cat's scratching my sofa. <laughs> it's making it emotional as I do apologize. Oh, so, good. so the, yeah, our muscles are, I think people are realizing now that we're not necessarily getting the lengthening effect that we're getting, that we opposed to thinking about when we're, eccentrically loading something we're getting more of sometimes especially in things like this the soleus we're actually getting more of a concentric effect when we hit the ground and then our tendons really being pulled so we have this effect of you know mm. one has to influence the other and again we're gonna there has to be a, a stiffening of the muscle as well so our muscular tenderness unit where the muscle joins into the, the tendon there has to be a segue there which shows us that there, there's got to be an, an adaptation if this is too stiff if the tendon's too stiff and the, the muscle's not stiff enough, then that will 99% of the time uh, come to an injury. We know that if, if something's weaker or stiffer or less stiffer, then we're going to get, there's a, there's a dis, disjoint in, in what's happening with the, the physiology of that area. Um, and we're probably going to result in, you know, you see it with sprinters, what's the big thing that goes? It's normally a hamstring injury. They've got super stiff tendons, but the muscle might not be ready for what they've been doing this period of time. So we have to realize that we, we also need to create adaptations in the muscles. We can call upon much larger groups of muscles as well because of the neuromuscular training that comes from, um, from plyometrics especially. Um, and I think is, is, a, is a really important part of then being able to produce force as well, mm. which is gonna be on that muscle pulling on that tendon. Talk a little bit about the different uh, time periods of these adaptations. So typically you see a lot of research that says, you know, maybe it's best to, to do some resistance training first. Maybe we, we need to build, build the base. We all, we've all heard that one. Yeah. So some strength training and then convert that into more power, elasticity, uh, reactiveness, all those things that, that come from you know, maybe plyometric training. Um, talk a little bit about why maybe that's not the best approach when, when actually putting athletes through the training process and, and how these different adaptations, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, there's a difference between how quickly a muscle can adapt versus tendon, ligaments, other tissues of that nature. Sure, sure. I whenever I get asked this sort of question and a lot, a lot of people do ask it because there is, there is research out there, like you say, and, and textbooks out there that suggest this building a base of resistance based training and then kind of climbing up the ladder of getting to more, the more in, intensive mm. speed power stuff at the top. Um, when actually I think that we've got to consider these 
training uh, methods such as speed and plyometrics as skills as well. It's really important to do that. And uh, if we look at the neuromuscular adaptations that comes to the adaptations that that's coming from all of the proprioceptive skills that we gain from the brain, the speed of the firing sequence that it takes for us to do this. You know, when we're, when we're talking about world-class sprinting, I think I've read research previously that suggests it takes 0.045 of a second. So it's a very, very brief amount of time mm. to send the signal to the body to do what we want to do on the ground. Well, a sprint stride, some sprint strides are, are around only double that amount of time. So mm. there, there are really critical parts to this equation of making sure that the neuromuscular side, so the skill-based things, the firing sequences, the recruitment processes, the excitability within muscles and how that links with the tendons has to be trained equally at the same speed as the physical side of things. So you can become super, super strong and able to create loads of force. But if you haven't got the skills on a neural level to do that, it's that same analogy of being able to fire a cannon out of a canoe. You don't have that base of capacity to do that. So I will always preach to individuals that no, mat no matter what stage an athlete's at, I think if it's safe, you have to get someone learning how to move within a plyometric sense or within a speed sense immediately within the training process. Um, mm -hmm. And you, you know, it takes a long time. It takes years to thicken tendons. It doesn't, it takes weeks to improve muscular capacity, mm -hmm. you know, and equally, and I'll say this now as a retired high jumper, my tendons are still pretty elastic. And I sometimes don't do anything for months on end and they stay elastic. Whereas muscles, they are the things that I get aches and pains in because I'm not doing the muscular work <laughs> alongside. So my tendons are still thick and stiff, but my muscles don't have that work. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and it takes me eight weeks to get to a stage where like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> mm. It's because I've done a decade of plyometrics. So mm. people need to get that understanding of learning that the, the tendon side of things, especially from a physiological point of view, takes a long time to adapt. The ligaments, I think, take even longer. And it takes even longer for a female for that to happen to, okay? Mm. So these are all the considera considerations that we need to put in. We, you've got to train females differently to males. And, and I'll always preach that a female will take longer for those adaptations to come in physiologically. The skill side of things will come in relatively similar times. Mm. Um, sometimes females learn a bit quicker in terms of the skill side of things. Um, but yeah, I think if you were to look at things, let's, I always go with the analogy of how long does it take for you to try and be fast or quick? No matter whether that's serving speed, whether that's sprinting speed, whether that's change of direction speed, it feels like it takes forever for that to be able to, for sensationally for it to feel better. You might be able to measure it and be like, oh, you're a point. X of a second quicker this time, or it's one mile an hour faster, but for it to sensationally feel different is a whole other equation. And I remember being like that as a kid, you know, why can't I be quite like faster off the first step? And it's because I wasn't doing the speed work that was required. It wasn't because I wasn't lifting loads of weights or, you know, so the adaptational side of things is, I think you can have that 
that thing in the background where you're you know you're constantly touching upon your your lifting side and your muscular capacity side but at the forefront should be your neuromuscular adaptational side of things where you're you are affecting the tendons and how they respond and most importantly how your brain responds to what's happening um, and when you can link them all together that's when i kind of see the synchronicity of flow and rhythm and just a better all-round moving athlete you know matt we've talked about federer so many times yeah. what is this what's this magician that moves around the court what does he do and i think that that's flow rhythm gracefulness but it doesn't come from you dancing around a court and thinking that you're going to do that by just staying in the gym it's about merging these two three four different training methods together and, and getting them all in the right places um so yeah sorry i, I went down many different avenues yeah no it's uh that's super interesting and it's actually funny like for me i'm i'm like more biased towards lifting weights so i need to get personally i know i need to get more elastic and uh, i need to do more plyometric training if i want to move better on the tennis court and and things like that but i remember when i was a kid um you know i, I didn't i was from the generation where i didn't know much my parents didn't know much <laughs> so um I, we definitely thought lifting weights was bad, right? So I didn't do any of that, but I played a ton of sports and I did some jumping and stuff like that. So I had a little bit of that background. When I, when I started lifting, when I was maybe 19 or 18 or 19, I felt like, like the first time I did a, um, you know, Olympic lifting session and a squat session, the next time I was on court, I was like, a different person but that was there's no adapt there, there's no muscular adaptations there like the tissue level from one session but it was just like this type of training whether it's you know lifting plyos it's very neural like you're saying and it's it's got something just clicked like my nervous system was awake you know and i felt felt better from that perspective but when you go i think if you go one way you know, too far down that direction in terms of the lifting. Um, there's just too many, too, too many negative side effects. If it's, if it's, you know, the predominant way that you're training, you know, you need to become elastic at some point to move better in sport. Would you, yeah. would you, yeah. would you agree with that? Like, is there a point Absolutely. where we say, you know what, let's just, we can maybe just maintain the lifting a little bit, just dabble, dabble it. Cause because you've got enough of it, um, but the explosiveness, the elasticity—I mean, that can be in the program almost all the time. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think the—I think people don't realize the effect of, you know, losing five percent explosiveness or elasticity in comparison to losing five percent. Again, going back to that scale of what, how long it takes to build strength like a baseline back squat strength, you know, if you lose 5%, you can bring that 5% up in eight weeks maximum. Like it wouldn't even take you that long, but you lose 5% in elasticity or that just that competition readiness, you know that that's something that needs to be touched upon week on week on week. And, and going back to the, the bits that you mentioned before, of maybe, you know, we've, 
especially with athletes that have a long off season, you've got this general prep, you've got this, you know, it gradually builds throughout the year. I think the gem, and I think this, this will change in the industry now because people are starting to understand that, you know, if you've come off of a six month season and you're in really great shape, obviously you need some time off, but equally, you know, I, I don't think that world-class athletes are really then stepping too far away from their event, which is going to be elastic and it's going to be, dynamic there's going to be just simple locomotive capacities to it rather than stepping back and going right we're going to draw a line and this is where we start again it's like we've we've just the reborn of a new human and right right we have to start from this baseline of can you walk again um so that's why and, and plyometrics and speed work and agility work is so much closer to the event people think that that is almost the thing that's dosed in a bit later especially within physical prep, maybe not so much within the skill-based community, but it's also, yeah, I don't think it's considered as important as getting someone strong. Mm. I'm way more interested in whether someone's fast, in my mm. humble opinion, mm. or whether someone's dynamic, able to change direction better. Um, so I think that it, it's got to lead your program and you can build strength over a period of years and then focus highly on the, the locomotive capacities. And I use that phrase all the time. And plyometrics is part of it and speed works part of it and change of direction um, and just general reactivity and elasticity is all part of locomotion, human locomotion and flow. Um, and I think it's gotta be in the program. It, my, my mentor always says, you know, this movement never leaves the program. Every yeah. week you will do, as a high jump, every week you'll hop. Every week as a tennis player, you'll hit serves or hit forehands, whatever it might be. Why can't it be the same for those sorts of forms of training? Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely interesting. And we, we've spoken about this before where, you know, depending on the intent of the movement, the plyometric movement, or, um, you know, you could, you could almost do it every day in, in, in the warm-up, right? If it's, if it's at a low enough, intent level where it's not necessarily fatiguing you from a nervous system perspective yeah. um but it's providing some sort of long-term benefit right and yeah. i think i mean i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this in terms of because i believe um you know in in terms of skill development because you touched on how plyometrics and speed is a skill and i totally agree and change of direction as well and all those movement abilities um because we oftentimes we just think of skill as you know like shooting a basketball hitting a forehand you know those are our skills but that's you know skills are are uh, a lot more diverse than that um so I think in terms of tennis, because I got this question actually the other day from, from someone, they said, are you only doing high intensity tennis sessions? Why? Well, I, I would say no. Like, I, I think there's so many benefits to hitting tennis balls, for example, at a lighter, lighter intensity, lighter intent, um, you know, feeling the movement, feeling the ball, hitting the racket and what that tension feels like and, and all these different things. Uh, from a skill acquisition perspective, um, I think there are tons of benefits, you know, and flow like you're talking about and just being in this kind of zone as you're hitting. Um, 
talk about how these lower kind of intensity activities um, have benefits from this maybe skill acquisition perspective and, and just long-term movement, um, yeah. you know, yeah. expression and improvement. It's, it's an interesting one as well, because my as soon as you mentioned that, my mind was like, well, how do you determine what's an intense tennis session? Is it metabolically intense? Mm. Is it is it neuro, neuromuscularly intense? Because you can have an intense session where, you know, you're hitting long rallies. And of course, this is super intense on the body. But equally, is it neuromuscularly intense where you're hitting serves for, you know, you, you've got five serves and you're only going to hit those five serves in a space of 25 minutes? That you're going be, all out. <laughs> going all out for those five serves. You know, that's how a world-class sprinter might work. They might work, mm. they might wait 12 minutes in between a, a run. And you're like, the run's like four seconds long. And they're like, that's how you tap into the neuromuscular side of, of training. Mm. So I won't go too far down that, but in terms <laughs> yeah. of the, um, but some very interesting <laughs> thoughts. Um, in terms of how, and it, it does go back to us, our points before, of how there are adaptations that will come from, lighter based movements especially and i've mentioned to this to you before that there's research that suggests and anecdotal evidence from my side of things that female athletes deal a lot better with getting a higher tendon response from a higher volume of lower intensity work mm. so they get a greater they they're able to thicken tendons at a better rate than what they would with more intense less volume movements so when we, and I, I think it's just a, a physiological difference between males and females that I think that they adapt in certain ways, um, just differences in male and female and how testosterone works, et cetera. But alongside of it, both male and females will, males will, like, will also be able to thicken tendons in a, in a good way uh, using, using lighter movements. So I, I will typically use a lot of light movements, especially within a warm up, but in terms of the, the main bulk of my plyometric workouts are at submaximal intensities. They might not, you know, when I say submaximal, they are close to being pretty dynamic and they are forceful and they carry speed. But again, it's about creating an athlete that is able to create a force and is able to utilize force and be dynamic, but in a relaxed manner. And that's, mm. that's got to be a critical part of tennis, right? When you've got someone that's grunting and it's gritting their teeth when they hit shots, the likelihood of the you know, range of motion is going to be poor. The, the control of the, the racket is then poor. And the way that you utilize force is then probably poorly distributed into the ball. Um, so I think when you're able to be competitive, even a, in a sub-maximal manner, I think it's really important. Mm. Um, and I also think it allows you then to unlock certain neuromuscular patterns in higher intensity movement that look smoother, even when you are doing maximal based hitting or running or whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, I use, I use a lot of, um, submaximal work because I think it supports the most maximal stuff. And a lot of people do, do equally do that as well. Um, but they think that plyometrics especially is just all and out. You know, it's completely mm. maximal intensity based. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily true because we, we can get incredible readings from athletes when they hop on one leg 
in a submaximal yeah. manner that's you know it's it's completely subjective to how they feel but if they say you know this isn't maximal you're like wow but you're still able to leave the ground in a very quick manner it's still it's like five to six times body weight upon landing that's pretty intense <laughs> so and again like when we say when we say submaximal or, or lighter versions i think people go too light and they, they start mm. to think oh, it doesn't become tennis anymore or it doesn't become close to the sport it still needs to be you're still hitting balls right that you're still moving in a, in a way that's you're still getting adaptations you're still yeah. learning you still have that, that skill adaptive process to it um and like you say you're able then to think about things a bit more at that at that level of the spectrum you're able to understand sensations better you might be able to communicate with that athlete better to understand what they need to do in a certain skill understand things tactically better so i think that if you're in a headspace a lot more in the submaximal range of things, I think that there can be a, you know, there's a lot gained from that in a skill-based coach perform, performance manner as well as the physical side of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just two quick things there. One, your your point about what's a light tennis session for me, a light tennis session is like it's more stationary. There's not as much movement. Because the COD, like the change of direction stress is can be really high. Um, so there's not a lot of movement. And in terms of like the, the amount of intent on your strokes, for example, you know, I don't know what other way to kind of explain that. It's, it's about, I, I say, I, I tell my guys no harder than about 70-ish, 75-ish percent of your maximum kind of intent hitting um so that's what we try to do the second thing in terms of the different types of plyos and, and the intense you've done a really great job of uh classifying plyos into these different kind of intensity boxes so you have you know your light tier medium tier ping tier and then your supportive tier uh we're not going to get into those necessarily because you got a ton of content on your site on your instagram so you know i don't want to get into those too much because people can can kind of learn more about that stuff there i've even written some some stuff about say, that so, so do you you, yeah, you've got yeah. some, you put together some great pieces on that and it goes into great detail of how that then relates back to tennis as well yeah. so yeah that you've got to yeah, consume so, stuff. but yeah. they're just being able to to categorize them that way, I thought was, was, was brilliant. And I think we need to do that in training a bit more, um, to simplify the process, not just for us as coaches, but for the athlete, because it just becomes a lot, you know, you're not going to start talking about, you know, tendon adaptations with your athlete. You're going to say, okay, today we're doing light tier plyos. Um, and they know what that is and they know why they're doing that. So, uh, but I'll let, I'll let people get into that. Um, if they want, they can, they can check out the site. They can check out your Instagram. We're going to get into that shortly, but, um, last, maybe, uh, last, maybe couple quick, quick questions. I may not be quick, but I hope they're quick. So, <laughs> uh, when it comes to strength training, like if you do a back squat, for example, it's probably, you know, the the highest type of strength stimulus that you can have in a general sense, right? On your body. Yep. If you get 
if you become stronger in a back squat, typically you get just generally stronger almost everywhere, right? Is there a similar adaptation in elasticity? Because I've, I've, I've heard other coaches, you know, like, like a Dan Paff, when, when he talks about um, stiffness, you know, because a lot of coaches say, you know, we're going to work on stiffness with these pogo hops, these different plyos. And a lot of the, the coaches talk primarily about lower body stiffness, lower body adaptations. But he, I've heard him talk about how that type of training actually has a whole body effect. You know, that you can't just stiffen your lower body. Otherwise, your postures are going to be all over the place. And so can you talk about that a little? Is there some truth to that? I, I think there's there's massive truth in it. And I think a lot of people get they get mixed up in the realms of trying to do upper body versions of things. And and like you mentioned then, I think we need to understand that plyometrics are whole body movement. There's there's an involvement with the the cross-sectional slings of the body and how, you know, if I'm hopping on one leg, I'm getting a ref, a reflex that's happening from the right top of my shoulder. And the directions of all the different muscles that interconnect from here all the way down to my left foot, that there's going to be muscles pulling on tendons all the way through the, the chain. It might not necessarily run all the way down my arm, but in retrospect, the most important part for us to learn where to stiffen from first is our central trunk and our core. If we can't do it through, if we can't stabilize well through the hips and our contact with the ground, then we're going to struggle to be able to then let's, if you're trying to be stiffer upon hitting a serve or a certain shot within tennis and you don't want to crumble at a joint, then the likelihood is that you need to stabilize through the hips and through, um, and through the posterior chain. Sorry, my cat's going. <laughs> Do so yeah, I think that there is a whole body kind of chain, you could say reaction that will move through the body um, and equally, you're going to get some form of adaptations that are going to that are going to happen like that. And I'll say, anecdotally, as a high jumper, I had all these sensations myself because we would, I was not even allowed to touch an upper body weight of any form. But we did obviously did a ton of lifting. We did a ton of plyos. Um, but equally, I would throw things. I would I'd mess around with our, our league teams, and they were like, "Can you go and throw the javelin?" And I'd equally be pretty effective at throwing throwing a ball or throwing a javelin because I, I had the ability to block I had the ability to control momentum and, and then mm -hmm. I'd be able to stiffen and then my limb would be able to act as like a whip so I think centrally you have to have this stiffening effect and learn you can learn that especially from plyometrics a lot of people use bilateral movements in plyometrics um, and we've spoken about it before my my love is the, the unilateral side of movement um, and, and learning how to hop. Um, and you can start with, with bounding forms, but learning how to hop on a single leg, I think is, you know, it's a narrower base. So what further up the body has to do, especially within the hips, is it has to work, you know, double time and being able to stabilize the pelvis, stabilize at a faster rate. It's going to call upon different muscles at, in the back, in the supported parts of the core. So you're going to be getting 
even further, I think, potential adaptations for it to affect upper body movement, especially. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. And I, I mean, just doing some bounding for me, like I'm, I'm so sore from bounding, you know, my, my, my obliques, my low back, my hips, you know, like, um, you know, my trunk, I've had athletes, believe it or not, they, they came to me. I didn't, I couldn't pinpoint exactly what movement, but there was nothing in the gym that we had done where their upper kind of, um, you know, it's, I don't know if it was rectus abdominis really, but they were, they were pointing more towards kind of like, you know, the sternum area, the, the lower rib um, and, and some real soreness there, maybe some serratus. And Definitely serratus. There's, there's, there's plenty of research on serratus. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and all these, yeah. And all these muscles that they're, they're so important in, in striking sports, you know, whether that's, ground strokes or overhead actions serve overhead overhead smash so uh i i'd like to think that there are some adaptations there that, that are going to help transfer into being because when i look at strokes um you know i wanted your take on this so maybe we can we can kind of dive into this a little bit but the serve for example if we look at sort of the principle of like the summation of forces going through the kinetic chain on, on a server, usually striking type sports, you know, we have the highest force outputs from the ground. And then as we go up the chain, you know, and we're, you know, on the serve, for example, we're starting to, to segment and sequence these different rotations of, of these segments. The, the movement is becoming more and more ballistic as we get up the chain and the force requirements become smaller and smaller, right? So I think from my perspective, there, there, there's something, you know, if we can get um, trunk adaptations from an elasticity perspective generally as well, um, and then up towards the upper body and then upper limb, you know, I, I would I would imagine that there's some general adaptations there that could that could benefit these striking sports, yeah, and, uh, particularly the serve. Yeah, I, I mean straight away it it's crazy how a, a like a striking player, someone like a tennis player, would actually f get soreness from like it, that baffles me. And someone that does a lot of overhead stuff and they've not got the support and even from doing some basic plyometrics that they feel soreness in that post. You think, you think with all of that rotational stuff they do, all of the breaking forces that they have to deal with. So that straight away says to me, you know, if you've never been able to tap into that before, then what does that have oh, in terms yeah. of potential oh, then yeah. and where that goes? Um, because I, th I think just, I think that plyometric stimulus, I think we were doing like some ping stuff, both bilateral and unilateral. And that type of stuff just, it's still for me a higher stress on certain structures than hitting a ground stroke, especially in players who uh, have done a lot of hitting in their lives, right? Because they're efficient at that movement. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think. I think we don't, un we don't realize the value in the 
the ground timings of well of how muscles may sequence together and how they're effectively work together so there will be certain parts of it that will you've got certain muscles that are turning on and activating at certain times where other muscles are having to relax so that they can uncoil in a certain shot and i think plyometrics is so important for teaching that the airborne phase to apply metrics teaches us to have that relaxive capacity to then switch on at the blink of an eye of which we we need you know when, when you chuck a ball up to serve there's going to be a state of relaxation and then as we come in to really strike that ball everything goes bang and it's like hitting a brick wall almost in terms of how we activate our musculature and how that would then work up the chain and like you say it then becomes ballistic at the top of the movement and at the end of the the hip yeah it's there's so much to be learned from plyometrics that i think i think there's something that you can tap into that's a bit more like you can kind of say it's a bit of a, a sad way to put it but there's something special in what i think that you can tap into when you really work elastic and dynamic landings that i don't think comes from anything else um yeah it's the kind of superhero capacities that, you know, we have in our bodies, this, that, that thing of, you know, when you electrocute yourself and you get thrown across a room, it's not the electric, it's the, your muscles capacity to, to fire you across the room. We have that. And I think it's, we're able to break down those inhibitions when we do things like pliers. So that might've been it. They've never used their, you know, ser serratus muscles before in a stroke, like they would maybe when they're landing on one leg and that flinch that you might get from the hip. And, and the pelvis and how that, you know, it goes, oh, I want to drop so badly, but I can't. I've got to control all my posture to be able to then recoil me off the floor. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's not researched enough. Um, yeah. it, it, the quality of plyometrics that's done within the research is not great either. Um, but I think in the next few, you know, five to 10 years, there's going to be more on that stuff for sure. And that'll be interesting to see and, and then yeah. how that kind of research progresses. and. I know you'll be you'll be part of that. Um, last question here, because I think a lot of people get this this confused, and you kind of burst my bubble with this one because I use this lingo before. But for upper body work, that's more ballistic. Um, a lot of coaches, athletes call call it plyometric. Talk a little bit about that, like pushing yourself doing let's say you're doing a you know a ballistic push-up where you're pushing yourself off the ground or some type of med ball activity where it's like a, a catch throw continuous repetitive sequence why are those not plyometric the the first part of it is the the landing sequence isn't as it is when you do lower body plyometrics and what i mean by that is especially when you do plyometric push-ups and I've seen some force curves of plyometric push-ups um, and, EM, and EMG, uh, EMG readings from plyometric push-ups and they'll, you know, put EMG readers on the body and check what's happening in the muscle at certain stages within prior to landing upon landing and stuff and then on takeoff. And you see straight away the, the quality of the EMG reading prior to landing um, in a, in a, uh, in a lower body plyometric is enormous. We mm. are the best movers in the world activate musculature up to almost 80 to 90% of what it's gonna get when it hit or what, how much it's gonna activate 
when they actually hit the ground. So they, the best athletes in the world are preparing for the ground. They've pretty much, they're fully fired almost before they've hit the ground. And they do it at a faster rate than sub-elite athletes do. So, you know, 0.1 of a second before they, do, before they hit the ground, they activate up to 80% of what they're going to do when they hit the ground. And then they'll hit and then leave the ground. Other guys are taking too long. It's not as high that are maybe a sub-elite. You don't see that in upper body versions. You see it in a really small amount, but it's nowhere near the spike that you'll get when you actually hit. Mm. Um, and I think that's because of the involvement and activation that's already co-contracting with you holding yourself in a position on the floor with your feet. So your feet are already anchored. And I know you go airborne for a split second, but I don't think you get the, the relaxation phase that you get when you completely leave the ground, which I think is important. I think it's important in how you um, pre-activate because you can't activate, you can't activate an already activated muscle, if you see what I mean. Like it's, you're, you're finding it difficult to do that. That's why stiff sprinters and movers don't move well. They're not elastic and they can't use range of motion as well because they're already stiff. Um, so that tells us straight away. So we don't have that good reading, preactive um, loading of the muscle. And we don't also then do that in a fast enough sequence to bridge the energy from the landing to the takeoff. We don't, we, we spend far too long on the ground in this isometric phase of us trying to get out of a deep hole. Um, we think it looks dynamic, but it's really not. If you were to do plyometric push-ups, you wouldn't want your elbows to bend. That's the way that I would look at it. And you mm. wouldn't want your wrists to really collapse that much. And then what do you see? You will see wrist, wrist issues because the wrist isn't built to land. It's built to grasp. That's mm. just how we're built as, as monkeys and, and homo sapiens. We're not meant to do that. We're mm. not a quadruped. Um, so those are some natural things straight away. So if you just looked at the ground contact time or the, the contact time of, a, of an upper body plyometric, you'll see that it's nowhere near half a second. So that's double the time in which we would quote a plyometric movement. Yeah. Um, it's just so much slower. <laughs> it yeah, really yeah, is. Yeah. Like fast looks fast to the naked eye, but you actually test it and you're like, wow, that's you know 300 times the amount of time I've spent on a single leg. Mm. And then you start to wonder why you can't deliver the force in the upper body that you get in the lower body. And you're like, well, it's because we spend three times the amount of time doing that. And the more time we spend on the ground, the less force we can deal with. The more time we spend, the more time it's just bleeding into the ground and we're not able to then use it. So I think that's a really simple way to go about it. I also think that people then, people get, I don't know if I offended you, Matt, when I said it, like I bluntly no. say it. <laughs> no, not at all. Not some at all. people do get a little offended and they're like, well, okay, there's nothing against it. By all means, you need ballistic work in there. I don't think that you should do jumping push-ups or whatever you want to call it. I just especially, don't think. Especially with a sport like tennis where the wrist is really important. Like you better have a healthy wrist. So important. Mm. So, you know, do other things. Do lying med ball. Something like that. Something that's more safer for the wrist. But it's, it, that, that's the biggest thing for me is your, your wrist is built to grasp. 
it's not really meant to be flexed back like that and then force applied to it. You know, I could, I could name five athletes straight away that have had issues with when it gets too heavy in a bench press. And I'm, they're like, my wrist kill after doing this. And I'm like, yeah, it's because of the position that you're applying force into the wrist. If you can grip over it, then you're not going to get that wrist pain. <laughs> You've got a much more direct route of where you put that force. So, and that's looking at a very low force range in comparison to what you would get if you were to land on your hands. Mm. So, yeah, those are some of my, that's, that's my rant for, for uh, upper body plyometrics. But mm. there is value in ballistic stuff for the upper body, without a doubt. Absolutely. So, yeah. it's just being careful with how you implement it. Yeah. And not assuming, because you can say, okay, yeah, this is plyometrics, but you can't then moan about not getting the tendon adaptations that you'd wish or the stiffness that you'd wish in upper body versions and then go, why is this not happening? Well, it's because you're spending 0.8 of a second on the ground in comparison to 0.15 that you get in a, in, a, mm. in a jump off of one leg. So this is why the adaptations come in lower body plyometrics and don't necessarily come in upper body. Yeah. I think also we're, you know, we're missing out on the key aspects of, of being ballistic from an upper body perspective. I mean, we're working through like in a tennis serve, a throw, you're working primarily through three axes, right? So antero-posterior, um, transverse, and longitudinal, you know? So you're, you're twisting, you're, you're yeah. laterally bending, and you're doing like this, you know, cartwheel you know thing from uh, extension to, to flexion of the trunk so if we're just doing a like a plyometric we're not getting into any of those ranges where that's where the ballistic nature of the stroke uh, needs to come from you know yeah. and I think a better way to do that like you said is through through med ball work and um, because there's so many different ways that you can you know, twist your, your upper body and, and propel a ball, you know? So, um, on that note though, we'll, we'll get into that one on another, <laughs> on another episode. Um, Matt, it was amazing to have you. This was great. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where people can learn more about you and what you do? Uh, where can they find you on social and all that? Sure. Um, so, the plyometric business that, um, that I run in terms of coaching and supporting athletes and, and coaches, um, and we provide lots of education as well, um, is plusplyos.com. You can go straight to there. Um, you can look at the subscriptions that we have. We also have, um, like I said, education. There will be lots more being added in the next coming months um, that's around physical preparation as a whole. Um, you can also reach out to me um, on social media at McInnes Watson, so M-C-I-N-N-E-S Watson, um, which I'm sure Matt will put in the in the notes anyway for you to, to click on there. I'm most kind of, I'd say, lively on Instagram, Twitter. I still don't understand what goes on in Twitter, <laughs> but <laughs> the Instagram is where where I put a lot more videos and discuss a lot on stories and stuff. So that seems to be where kind of mix a lot of my my coaching and plyometric knowledge into mm. yeah i appreciate you having me on it's uh it's always really enjoyable to kind of dig into this stuff and to test my thought processes from a, a tennis perspective as well and racket sport perspective 
Um, so yeah, I really appreciate it. So I'm sure it'll be a, a great podcast with some really good guests as well. So I appreciate it. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah. I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. Cheers.